Amen. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be reading uh, that entire chapter here in just a moment. Glad uh, that we can be together. You know, it's fun to look out on a Sunday morning uh, with a lot more people on this side uh, today. If you're over here, you're crowded. If you wanted space, you could have come over here. Uh, just a few more steps and you, you could add more space. But uh, grateful uh, that you're here. You know, you get to look out and think of relationships uh, with, with you. Uh, some of you, uh, some of you I just met this morning. Others of you uh, have, have known even for some time. And, uh, and this is part of the beauty of being a part of the body of Christ. Relationships built up over time. We learn to know each other, to love each other, uh, to speak the truth into one another's lives. And uh, just very grateful for that. Uh, so grateful for the relationships that God provides. I'm grateful for my wife. A lot of you uh, are served by her in a lot of different ways, but my relationship uh, with her is, is one that, that some of you get to see to a small degree. But if you could see all of the ways that Kirsten loves and serves me when I don't deserve it, uh, you, you would be quite impressed uh, with her. And I'm very grateful for that relationship. And we acknowledge that different relationships require different levels of commitment. Kirsten remains committed to me when I fail. I think of, of relationships that we have that are much more casual in nature. I don't know, if you, when you go to a store, if you are the type of person that goes to the checkout line uh, where the one, one person's working, uh, or you go to the self-checkout line because it might be faster. A lot of times I choose to go uh, and have the employee working there scan my items uh, and then walk out that way, and I try to refuse to go to the self-checkout. But sometimes my, my time is, is, is important, and I need to keep going. And so my commitment to the person working at the cash register is pretty casual. So I don't mind just walking away from that uh, relationship I wasn't anticipating over those few moments of, of checking out my, my items and instead going over to the self-checkout. But with Kirsten, uh, my relationship is a lot more serious and formal. In fact, we stood before a group of people, a lot of people, I think like 250 people, on May 19th in 2001, standing before a group of people and declaring to one another that in this relationship, we are making some commitments, some vows to one another uh, of ways that we intend to live in relationship with each other that will be good, not only for our good, but for the glory of God. What types of commitments are there in the relationship between God and His people? Certainly we know it's more important and more serious and less casual than the relationship that you might have with somebody working as a cashier in that brief moment. Certainly it's serious, in fact so serious that it has eternal importance. For sinful people all of us, to relate to a holy God, we learned last week that we need a mediator. We need a priest, namely Jesus. But how will this relationship between God and his people work? Throughout history, we have seen uh, one of the lenses through which we understand the relationship between God and his people is through the lens of a word in the Bible used frequently the word covenant. Covenant essentially just being a, a relationship based on commitments. How would a holy God live with a sinful people? And so last fall, we actually, in the 
six weeks I think it was, leading up to Christmas, took a break from the series we were in, and we just walked through the Old Testament covenants, God's covenant with Adam, God's covenant with Noah, God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Moses or Israel, and then God's covenant uh, with David. And then we ended by looking in Jeremiah chapter 31, written 600 years about before the time of Christ, a prophecy about a coming new and better covenant that would be on its way. And so we also looked at that time at Hebrews chapter 8 because here in Hebrews chapter 8, which we're looking at today as we walk through the book, we're doing the entire chapter of of Hebrews 8. In Hebrews chapter 8, we see the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. It's right here in this chapter, and it comes out of Jeremiah chapter 31. So what I'm about to read, verses 8 through 12, are from Jeremiah 31. So this is trying to explain and describe how we get from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, how the New Covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Here's the big idea today. Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant. Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant. I hope that we don't only uh, just see like, oh, this was very useful for the original audience, but we see how this is useful and necessary and good for us today. So walk through Hebrews chapter 8, we'll take communion together, uh, sing together, and that's the plan for the rest of the morning. If you're able to, would you please stand as we prepare to read the very word of God. Let's, let's pray. Father, I, I want to be, and I want us all to be, people who are humble and contrite and tremble at your word. Thank you. That your spirit inspired the author of Hebrews to write these words not only for the good of those who, who had trusted in Christ and were tempted to go back to their own religion, but thank you that you, by your power, have preserved these words through the generations that we can have confidence that what we are about to hear is the very word of God. And then as I follow that up by preaching, I pray that you would help the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be pleasing in your sight, and that you would help us to be discerning, not only that we would understand in our minds, but that it would affect our hearts and therefore affect everything that we do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 8, God's word says this, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. 
For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Amen. You can be seated. Inside your bulletin is a sermon notes page. If that's helpful for you to follow along with an outline in there, that our life group guide is then attached to that as well. Life groups are still getting going. And so if you are considering, oh, should I jump into that or not? Uh, the answer is, yeah, uh, I think you probably should. And if you want more information, check out our website. So, Hebrews chapter 8. In many ways, if you've been here over the last weeks, you, you recognize that these better than arguments that have walked us through the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the, the better revelation of God, he's better than angels, he's better than Moses, Right? He's better than Joshua, he's better than Abraham, and he's better than priests is what we've been looking at for the last week. Okay? Ever since chapter 4, verse 14, the argument is Jesus is the better priest. And really... section. Jesus, it says, is the better priest still. Here's how this kind of fits in. Remember last week that we were told Jesus is, is a better priest because he's not a priest like the priests you know. Because as people that came out of the Jewish religion, they knew many priests, priests that had to be descended from the tribe of Levi. So they were called Levitical priests. But Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. And so the best comparison they could come up with is saying that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Took a look at this guy who only gets mentioned in two verses in all of the Old Testament, but basically gets a whole chapter in the New Testament because he's this mysterious, obscure priest slash king. He's both priest and king. Be both priest and king. Last week, who is the king is the perfect and permanent priest, and only through him can we draw near to God. Right? That's what we saw last week. Only through King Jesus, the perfect and permanent priest, can we draw near to God. And so in many ways, what we're looking at here in the first verses of chapter 8 is a, a, a kind of wrapping up of that argument. That's why it begins with this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Like, all right, we just spent three chapters, and if you got really confused by all that stuff about Melchizedek, let's just make this clear. Here's the point of what we are saying. We have such a high priest. And then notice why Jesus is a better priest. First of all, I think what we're going to see in verses 1 and 2 is that he's a better priest because he's in a better location. Notice this. We have such a high priest 
one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Notice the emphasis on the location. That Jesus is a priest unlike the priests of the Jewish faith, right? Who would be temporary, would be in their office until they die. Jesus is a priest who's ministering right now in the heavens, in the holy place, in the true tent. Jesus is a better priest because he's in a better location. We spent time on that last week. Won't spend a lot more today. Because he is a priest also who offers a better sacrifice. In verses 3 and 4, as I just read that, you heard again and again the word offer being repeated. And last week we noticed that it was Jesus not offering up bulls and lambs and goats, but Jesus offering up himself as the sacrifice. Jesus is a priest. He's a better priest because he offers a better sacrifice, offering up himself. So, Wrapping up that argument that Jesus is the better priest, we focused a lot on it last week, then we get to verse 5. Here's, I think, the transition verse of this passage. Remember, the priesthood was just one of the commitments laid out between God and his people in the Old Covenant. The priesthood was part of that covenant. How are sinful people going to relate to a holy God? Well, they're going to need a priest. And so a priesthood was part of the Old Covenant, but it wasn't the whole of the Old Covenant. And we've been getting these teasers. Just like before we got to chapter 7 that was all about Melchizedek, remember there was these teasers in chapter 5 and chapter 6, this quick line, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it gets you wondering, okay, when's he going to talk more about that? If you remember last week in chapter 7, verse 22, we were told that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And we've been waiting for him to get at that a little bit more. And that's what we're going to see now today in chapter 8. So really just kind of uh, getting us going in this new argument. The, the better covenant is kind of the argument from chapters 8 now through chapter 10. Okay? All right, so now we get kind of like how, how the land is all laid out. Let's take a look more closely, though, at verse 5. Verse 5 says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, the, the gifts, the sacrifices, the priests. They were like a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. And then this, this comment that for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain, which you could read about at the end of the book of Exodus. But making this point, this idea about a shadow of a better reality, that, that all of these components of the old covenant, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple, the tent, the tabernacle, all those things were, were, were copies or shadows pointing ahead to something new and better that was still coming. The way I've described this before was it with the idea, again, not a perfect analogy, but the idea of a blueprint. Think about a blueprint. As our church, which was planted in the early 80s, met in a few different locations but kept outgrowing those locations, eventually the church said, we need to buy some land for us to construct a more permanent structure. So they bought this strip of land that we're on right now. And the initial phases, after lots of different design plans and all this stuff, which we actually, last time I used this illustration, actually, we, we didn't even have the, we couldn't find the blueprints. We had all these different design drawings of something that never got built. Uh, that's what we had here. Since then, we have 
found the, the actual blueprints for the building that we're sitting in. But for a time, those, those were helpful, very helpful uh, for, for kind of laying the groundwork for what would become the building that we're now sitting in. But a blueprint by nature is limited. Like you don't gather in a blueprint. You don't sing together in a blueprint. That was just a copy, a shadow, a picture, a foreshadowing, a really accurate picture of what was yet to come. And so in many ways, we can look at the Old Covenant in that way, that, 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 that God was preparing His people for this New Covenant that was yet to come, and that old one was useful for a time, just like the blueprints were useful for a time. Once we had the building, the blueprints weren't that useful, which is why we couldn't even find them, right? Like, we didn't, we didn't really need it. Like, in order for you to find where the bathroom is, you didn't find, like, you got the blueprints for this place? No, you just walk around and you find the bathroom, right? So, that's not a perfect illustration, but it maybe is helpful. It's like a precursor of a greater reality, like a blueprint is to a building, the old covenant to the new covenant, a precursor, useful for a time, but limited in its use uh, until the new and better reality comes. Jesus, the better priest of a better covenant. So, we start now looking at this argument in verse 6. In verse 6, the argument is put in this way. But as it is, Christ, now comparing Jesus to the ministry of the priests, okay? Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. Okay, so the old ministry, the priesthood ministry, that was a good ministry. That was useful for a time, but Jesus' ministry is much more excellent. And their comparison is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Jesus is the better priest, so he's got a better ministry, and also he mediates a better covenant. Since it is enacted on better promises. Setting up the argument for what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. So, kind of by nature, if something is coming that's better, that says, well, there was something wrong with what was there before, right? You don't look for something better if what you have is working perfectly fine. So, let's take a look at verses 7 through 9 as we answer the question, well, why did we need a new and better covenant? What was wrong with the first one? Right? What, what was the problem? Why, why do we need one? So a couple of problems with the old covenant. Number one, it was provisional. It was there for a certain amount of time, and it was useful for that time, but it was never intended to be permanent. It was provisional. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, For if the covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You don't need something new and better if the old one was perfectly fine. When we moved to Iowa Falls back at the end of 2012 as a family, we knew what we wanted to do is be planted here for a long time, and so we thought the best way to invest our money would be to buy a home. But as we started looking around, there wasn't much available for us to purchase in our price range at that time. So for a period of time, we were able to rent a house, right? So, so God provided for a period of time a, a provision for us 
that for a period of time, we could live in a house owned by somebody else, but we could pay them to live there for a time until we could move into a permanent house. Right? So, so similarly, the old covenant was provisional. It wasn't faulty like God set it up wrong. I, I mean, we didn't, we didn't live in a perfect rental house either, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like God set up the old covenant wrong, but it was faulty in the sense that it was not permanent or complete. It wasn't what was original. It wasn't going to be what was ultimately uh, going to be the way in which God would re- relate to his people or the way in which God's people would relate to him. All right, so it was provisional. That was one problem. It's not necessarily a problem. It's just like, well, it was never intended to be the final covenant, right? But the other problem was this. This is in verses 8 and 9. For he finds fault with them. He finds fault with them. Part of the problem of the old covenant was the people failed. Look at it later in verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. The people failed to hold up their end of the covenant. Their commitments, they failed. God always faithful in his commitments. The people, however, failed to keep their commitments. Occasionally, the Old Testament refers to the relationship between God and his people as a marriage. God being the groom who's always faithful and his his people being sometimes and even often unfaithful. So, two problems with the Old Covenant. One, it was provisional, and two, the people failed. Okay, so a new and better covenant is needed. Why is it better? Why is the new one better? That's what we see in verses 10 through 12. Why is the new one better? Let's start with verse 10. Verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make. Remember, this is all a quotation now from Jeremiah 31. So this is God 600 years before through the prophet Jeremiah saying, here's what I will do. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, this is what God has done. Like in our generation, this is what God has done. Listen, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. Now here's what I want us to notice. Three things, three ways the new covenant's better. It's internal instead of external. Listen to this. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the difference. Like if you think about the old covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, written on a stone tablet and inaccessible to pretty much everybody, to everybody, right? But now God's saying in the new covenant, it's going to be internal instead of external. Not a set of laws that you're going to try to obey, but instead a law written on our mind and on our heart. So it's better because it's internal instead of external. Secondly, it's better because it is with all peoples instead of one people. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Under the old covenant, God's people were the Israelites, Jewish people, born into one of the 12 tribes, while people of other nations lacked God's blessing because Israel often failed to pass that on to others by teaching them. 
But now, the people of God, even just 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead, the people of God is made up of Jews and Gentiles from many nations already. And just like his message at the beginning to them, like, listen, this is internal instead of external. So, so why would you go back? Why would you go back to trying to follow the written law? You've been, you've been born again, united to Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Why would you go back to the old way? And, and likewise, the message here would be, why would you go back to excluding Gentiles of the, from the blessings of God's salvation? And then the third reason here that is better, we see in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We've talked about it, and we'll see again in coming weeks, how the forgiveness of sin being dependent in the Old Covenant on earthly priests offering repeated sacrifices. No permanent solution. Remember, like the Day of Atonement, that happened Every single year, sacrifices repeated over and over and over, blood spilled over and over and over again. But in Christ, God would deal mercifully and permanently with our sin through his life, death, and resurrection, through the blood of Christ shed once for all. Again, more on that in these coming weeks. And so his message to them is, don't, why would you go back to repeated sacrifices? Why would you go back? Complete forgiveness is offered you in Christ. Don't go back to that. And that's kind of the concluding message here. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Don't go back to something that is becoming obsolete and vanishing and falling away. You know, when I was just looking at this again this morning, this, this popped into my mind, and I can't, I can't even recall if it was like I'm just imagining this. I didn't play many video games. I was an odd kid. A lot of my friends played a lot of video games in the 90s uh, when I was a kid. I played some. But I happen to remember like this, this, one to- this one game. I don't know if it was like Mario or something like that. I'm playing this game, and I remember like you'd be advancing ahead. You're trying to get somewhere. You're advancing ahead, and you're standing on something. But after a certain amount of time, that thing you're standing on disappears. And you've got to quick get to the next thing before that thing disappears. And once you're on the next thing, you can't go back because it's already vanished. right? That, that's kind of the picture you have here. He's just speaking very practically. The old covenant is obsolete. It's vanishing. It's it's falling away. Why would you go back to that? That's not a foundation upon which you can stand. If you're watching the movie, don't push pause and go back and watch the trailer. If you own a house, why would you pay for a rental? If you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ and live in this new covenant relationship with Him, why would you go back to the old, provisional, temporary, inferior, growing old, obsolete, vanishing away first covenant? That's the argument he's trying to make. Remember, all through the book, he's trying to convince them, Jesus is better, don't go back. Jesus is better, don't go back. So that's, that's the message for them. 
And maybe you've been able to follow, but here's the challenge with this. If we're just honest, uh, with a lot of the book of Hebrews, and this is why I said I'm preaching through it, not because it's the easiest book to understand, but because we often avoid it because it is harder to understand. Because our context is different. Hardly anybody that I know of here is coming out of a Jewish background. None of us are living in the first century facing persecution and wondering about turning back to Judaism. That's the original audience that heard this. But, but we have found over and over again as we've gone through this, there is much in this that is applicable for us. Here are a couple of things, I think, from this passage that are very applicable to us. Number one, God remains committed to a relationship with people who fail to keep commitments. Don't we see that all throughout Scripture? That God remains committed to a people who fail to keep commitments. Remember all those, one of the major problems uh, with the old covenant was the people, the people that failed. God makes a covenant with Adam and Adam fails. Noah failed, Abraham failed, Israel failed, David failed, yet God never once failed. God was always faithful even when his people were unfaithful. And think about that. Does that that apply for us today? This same God has seen you and me fail again and again. I'll just tell you just, just an example from the last week for me. The week before this week, I watched a video to prepare for our Sunday school lesson. It was a really good one. I prepared the lesson, and I was convicted. I remember sitting in my office, walking through this, and just feeling convicted by this. But within two days, so I think I was doing that on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I was getting ready for that. Within a couple of days. Before I got to go and present that lesson that I'd prepared on Sunday, before I even got to share it, I failed in exactly the same way that I was preparing a lesson to teach on. That I I noticed I had let my desire for getting a lot of things done take control of my heart. And letting that desire just run rampant in my heart, I failed to love my family well. And then I come and present that on Sunday morning, and God in his grace convicted me all over again. God had to convict me once earlier that week, that same week. I'm not just like the kid in the class. I'm the one teaching the class, right? I get that. So I had spent some time in this. I'm convicted by it, and then I fail, fall flat on my face a couple days later. And God, by his grace, allows me to stand in front of a group of people and sit with a group of people watching it again and convicting me again. God is gracious. We fail again and again and again. We fail to keep our commitments, and God is always faithful. And I'm grateful for this. I think the second point of application for us could be this. There are also three ways the new covenant is better for us. I talked about how it's better for them, right? This new covenant was better for them, but it's also better for us. Now, again, I've got to try to describe this to you because they're comparing the new covenant with the old covenant, and they, as former Jews, had once lived under the old covenant. So he's convincing them the old covenant that you used to live under is not as good as the new covenant that you're now living under. The thing with me communicating to us is 
Most of us have not lived under the first covenant. But it's still valuable for me, I think, to try to explain to us, but here's why what we have now is so much better. It's kind of like when, when one generation's trying to share with the next generation, like you're talking about phones, like you see you know, young people that have phones, and, and we, well, most of us have a phone, many of us a smartphone right, that we can put in our pocket, and we tell stories to the younger generation of when phones used to be attached to walls. Like they, they never lived in that world, but we're telling them about this day when phones used to be attached to walls and there were cords on them. And you might even tell the story of, of when we got on that phone, our neighbors were on the phone and they were listening, right? It was a party. So, so all of these things, like we're telling them and they've never experienced it, but we're, ex- we're telling them so that they know what you have now is better. Well, that's arguable, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe that wasn't the best illustration now that, I, now that it comes out. But you kind of get the point, right? We're saying even if you haven't experienced life under the first covenant, you need to be convinced. We need to be convinced that this way of God relating to his people, we can give God thanks and praise that we've been, we've been uh, born into this time in history, in this place in history, where what was presented to us was not the, the old covenant, but what was presented to us was the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the same three things that were true for them are true for us. Why is it better? Is it better for us to have an external or internal understanding of our relationship with God, of how it is that we can? Internal, right? Our relationship with God is not dependent, thanks be to God, on us knowing, understanding, and obeying a written law. But it comes first through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again and then dwells in us. Listen to what it says in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Praise God, because we fail again and again. Even if we just learned it two days ago, we'll fail again and again and again. So praise God that our relationship with God is not based on, oh, I read this and now I get it and I live it out perfectly. No, you cannot be saved in that way. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. How? But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you have not been born again, washed clean through faith in Jesus, you've not been saved by God's grace through faith, I love to talk to you before you leave today about that. The second reason it was good for them or better for them is, a, is also a reason it's better for us. It's for all people. Isn't it good news that a relationship with God is not just for one certain religious or family history? People with one certain religious or family history, it's not just for them. You might come from a very non-religious, messed up family. And even being with church people, people feels really unnatural to you. But God has brought us together in Christ. Here's what it says in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God's new covenant is for all peoples. That's why we're an evangelical church, right? It, we have good news that we then share with other people. This is good news for all people. It's not just for one type of people. 
And then finally, it's eternal. A relationship with God is not something we fall into and out of based on how well we did at avoiding sin that week. Isn't that good? Uh, Our relationship with God is not based on how well we did at avoiding sin that week. Here's what it says in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant. For us to have a relationship with him, there was a cost. And it was a cost that he paid in full on the cross. Jesus, willingly giving up his own life, his own blood, shed for us. And so it's pretty fitting that the day that we get to Hebrews chapter 8 is the first day of the month, which is when we normally, or first first Sunday of the month, which is normally when we as a church take communion together. So we're going to do that here in just a moment. But let's just close the sermon by praying. God, we are grateful that you have sent your Son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you for the new covenant in his blood. So God, would you prepare our hearts now for communion? And then would you prepare us to be people this week who just live with deep gratitude that you have made a way for us to live in right relationship with you? We know it comes only through your son, so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me tell you.